When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome to Herd Tell. It is Wednesday, March the 16th, year of our Lord 2022. So glad you could join us. Got a couple different stories. We want to turn down the noise of the news cycle on and get into some really good information. Uh, there's a story out in LA, drunken fire chief. Yeah, he got himself a nice little golden parachute and some corruption go with it. We'll talk about that government corruption, a theme on this program. Uh, also, the Senate, uh, come to find out they can move fast when they want to. They unanimously passed a vote about making daylight savings time permanent. No more time switching. We'll get into that a little bit later on. Uh, Over in Britain, a great story to end the program. 100,000 Britons signed up to house Ukrainian refugees. We're going to get into that. And it's already been brought up by our guest today. We're going over to the UK. uh, One of our great Young Voices contributors, Young Voices UK contributors, uh, Alice Watson-Brown. Uh, is on the program today, going to get real deep in the woods about Ukraine and Russia, going to talk the UK perspective on those issues. There's a river of dirty oligarch money that goes through London and the financial centers of England. She's going to talk about that. Also, Boris Johnson kind of redeemed himself from some scandals, going to talk about his leadership, England's place in the world, the kind of weird place they are post-Brexit, now having to figure out their place in the world and in the EU and these sorts of things. A British perspective, a UK perspective on the goings-on with Alice Watson-Brown. Really appreciate having her on the program. But first, let's start with some domestic politics. Um, CNN, uh, (laughs) folks, uh, Chris Chisilla, the headline, a majority, and they put asterisks around majority in the headline. Not sure I've ever seen that before of voters don't think Joe Biden will run again. Uh, In the piece, those numbers come courtesy of a new Wall Street Journal poll, which suggests the electorate has serious doubts as to whether Biden, who will be 81 during the re-election campaign, will seek another four years in office. Ask whether he was planning to. He said, yes, but look, I have great respect for fate. Fate has intervened, blah, 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 wordy, 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 that says absolutely nothing. That leaves wiggle room, he put in his piece in exclamation. Folks, (sighs) If there is breath in Joseph Robinette Biden's body, he's going to run for president and he's going to be the Democratic nominee for president in 2024. Unless something catastrophic happens with his health or his polling numbers get so bad that he's not politically viable, neither which of those, number one, we pray that doesn't happen to his health. Number two is I don't foresee that happening with his polling numbers and the polarization right now. He's going to be somewhere in the 40s from now throughout the duration. But folks, He's going to run again unless his bell's bad or unless something catastrophic happens. He's going to run again. And he ought to. If you're a Democrat, 
if you are on the Democratic side of things, you want him to run because he's the only person who can put together the coalition that won in 2020. I know that's kind of a hard thing to discuss, but if Joe Biden's not at the top of the ticket, if he doesn't make the big comeback in the primaries, if he doesn't rally specific parts of the base like the African-American vote and some of the more conservative, democratic and moderate and center left uh, parts of the party and put the coalition together that got the highest vote total in the history of the United States of America. Let me say that again. Joe Biden got the highest vote total in the history of the United States of America with the coalition he put together. Yes, he's going to be the nominee in 2024. Everybody's kidding themselves. I know there's all these conspiracy theories and people like, well, he'll just folks. Have you read about Joe Biden? Are you new to Joe Biden? Do you know anything at all about the 50 year history of public service of Joe Biden? Joe Biden loves him some Joe Biden. He's not going to step away unless forced to or unless something happens to him. He's got his moment. And he's going to continue that moment for as long as he can. He waited a long time to get into the White House. He's not just going to step aside. He's not just going to move along for the next person. And if you're in the Democratic Party, you probably don't want him to because you're going to need a specific coalition to win again in 2024. In case you didn't notice, Joe Biden won the primary because the bench and the poo-poo platter of presidential candidates that was fielded by the Democratic Party was not that very impressive. I'll go ahead and howl about it. Go ahead and say I'm being crazy. Go ahead and say I'm being biased. But I have proof. Joe Biden beat them all. And that's something people at the beginning of the race had a lot of doubts about. Joe Biden won the presidency because he was the best option for the coalition that needed to win the presidency. Elections are not just things we throw around online. They're real life people and they have habits and they have motives. And you have to have a constituency. You can have a big Twitter following. You can have a lot of buzzwords. You can have a lot of fundraisers. Do you have a constituency? When I look at presidential candidates, that's the first thing I look at. What's their constituency? And you can figure out really quick who has one and who's not. Our current vice president, Vice President Harris, had a lot of establishment report, had a lot of establishment support, had a lot of fundraising, had a lot of big name backers, didn't even make it to Iowa didn't have a constituency. You can go down the list of others uh, that ran and did not do well and how everybody was shocked and shaken. Remember, President Biden was left for dead electorally after Iowa. And then the big comeback in South Carolina, where especially African-American voters in South Carolina and more moderate Democrats ran, not walked to the polls in record numbers to support Joe Biden. You have to understand where the electorate of your party and the electorate of the country is at any given time. There is no Democrat in the country right now that can put together the coalition that Joe Biden can. So as long as he has breath in his body, as long as they can prop him up to a podium, as long as he's able to deliver a somewhat passable performance, he's going to be on the ticket. And if you're a Democrat, you probably want him to be on the ticket, no matter what problems he has. or thing. Remember another thing. 2024, we don't know the environment yet because we haven't done 2022 yet. Right now, it's all Democrats. If the Democrats lose the House, 2024, Joe Biden's running against a Republican Congress that's been in power for two years and never underestimate the ability of the GOP to make a shambles of things. It'll be a little bit of a different environment. Fighting against instead of being all on charge of everything and everything being on his head, that's a totally different environment. 
So don't get ahead of yourself on this. Joe Biden's not going to run in 2024. Now, God may intervene because of his age or health or something like that. God forbid we want the president to be healthy. But that's it. Otherwise, just go ahead and get right with it. Go ahead and accept it. Go ahead and go through your stages of grief. Go ahead and prepare all your hot takes for the next two and a half years. Joseph Robinette Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee in 2024 unless something catastrophic happens. And that's probably the way it ought to be. And the Republicans will be just fine running against his record. And Democrats should be just fine running on his record. Because the constituency that he can bring isn't replicable with anybody else they currently have on the bench. So just accept it. I know it's sexier to talk about him standing aside or somebody else coming up or who could replace him. It's boring to say that he's going to be the nominee. But he is. Just accept it. And let's push on forward. More Hurtel right after this. back to Hurtel. Let's go out to LA, Los Angeles, city of angels, city of a scandal. We, you know, we talk a lot about government accountability here. This story will just absolutely infuriate you. Uh, Los Angeles Times. Last spring, a high-ranking official in the Los Angeles Fire Department alleged that its top administrative commander, Chief Deputy Fred Mathis, appeared to be intoxicating while he was overseeing the agency's operations center during the Palisades fire. The officer reported that Mathis admitted to her that he had been drinking, according to LAFD records. Now the Times has learned that a private law firm hired by the city to investigate the May 18th episode found that Mathis was likely intoxicated at the department's headquarters at City Hall East. But the investigation cleared Mathis, as is the LA Times, through a rationale that has outraged department insiders. The law firm concluded Mathis, this is a quote, was technically off-duty while he was likely intoxicated as he had put himself out sick, end quote, that day. According to a summary of the findings the department provided the Times, the newspaper reported in July that an entry was made in Mathis's timekeeping records four days after the incident to show he was on sick leave the day he was reported to be drunk on duty. Mathis told the Times in the email that he did nothing wrong and was treated unfairly by the department. The heads of three organizations for firefighters um, say the Mathis case is just the latest example of the department granting special treatment to the senior officers, especially if the men are men or white and Mathis is both and the leaders of the group say the treatment is often accompanied by cover-up sometimes with the help of elected officials among them mayor garcetti and a t- city attorney mike fear a candidate for mayor who fear crossing the lafd's politically influential union bosses two members of the fire commission the five-person civilian panel that oversees the department echoed the criticism and decried a lack of accountability in the leadership ranks quote from Commission President Jimmy Woods Gray, now every rule is based on who you're applying to, and LAFD spokeswoman would not answer us numerous times questions about the Mathis finding. Folks, if it looks corrupt, and it walks corrupt, and it sounds like corrupt, and it smells like corrupt, and it gets a big fat payout, it's corrupt. It's another example of unaccountability. You have somebody 
who was not only intoxicated on duty, but went in four days after the fact, changed their sick policy so they'd have the technical term out. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Let's go out to L.A., Los Angeles, City of Angels, City of a Scandal. We, you know, we talk a lot about government accountability here. This story will just absolutely infuriate you. Uh, Los Angeles Times. Last spring, a high-ranking official in the Los Angeles Fire Department alleged that its top administrative commander, Chief Deputy Fred Mathis, appeared to be intoxicating while he was overseeing the agency's operations center during the Palisades fire. The officer reported that Mathis admitted to her that he had been drinking, according to LAFD records. Now the Times has learned that a private law firm hired by the city to investigate the May 18th episode found that Mathis was likely intoxicated at the department's headquarters at City Hall East. But the investigation cleared Mathis, this is the LA Times, through a rationale that has outraged department insiders. The law firm concluded Mathis, this is a quote, was technically off duty while he was likely intoxicated as he had put himself out sick, end quote, that day. According to a summary of the findings, the department provided the Times. The newspaper reported in July that an entry was made in Mathis's timekeeping records four days after the incident to show he was on sick leave the day he was reported to be drunk on duty. Mathis told the Time in the email that he did nothing wrong and was treated unfairly by the department. The heads of three organizations for firefighters um, say the Mathis case is just the latest example of the department granting special treatment to the senior officers, especially if the men are men or white and Mathis is both and the leaders of the group say the treatment is often accompanied by cover-up sometimes with the help of elected officials among them mayor garcetti and city attorney mike fear a candidate for mayor who fear crossing the lafd's politically influential union bosses two members of the fire commission the five-person civilian panel that oversees the department echoed the criticism and decried a lack of accountability in the leadership ranks Quote from Commission President Jimmy Woods Gray, now every rule is based on who you're applying to. An LAFD spokeswoman would not answer us numerous times questions about the Mathis finding. Folks, if it looks corrupt and it walks corrupt and it sounds like corrupt and it smells like corrupt and it gets a big fat payout, it's corrupt. It's another example of unaccountability. You have somebody who was not only intoxicated on duty, but went in four days after the fact, changed their sick policy so they'd have the technical term out. This kind of stuff is bad. Imagine if it cost somebody their lives. Imagine if it cost people's property because this Palisade fire was brutal. It's not okay. It's never okay. And yet we tolerate it, and the machinations of government tend to cover things up and give them, in this case, a golden parachute. Mathis's payout, $1.4 million. All taxpayer money. More hotel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for sticking with us. Going back overseas, another one of those great UK contributors we get from Young Voices. We're always thrilled to have them. Really excited to have this one. I've listened to her and read her stuff for a while, so it's fun to actually get to talk to her. Uh, Alice Watson-Brown, how are you today? I'm really well. Thank you so much for having me on here. It's a privilege. Thrilled to have you. She is all over uh, UK media, but if you're an American, you may not be as familiar with her work. You're going to get a good heavy dose of her today, though. Uh, Just real quick, introduce yourself to the folks over here. You're Young Voices, so they know you're quality people just from that. 
because we have you folks on so much, but tell them a little bit about yourself and your background. Uh, well, I'm 21, very nearly 22. I study politics with uh, data science at the University of Bristol, which is sort of like in the west of England. Uh, very rainy, but it's spring now, so it's pretty pretty beautiful here. Um, and I was born and raised in London, so I'm a city gal, uh, you know, um, and yeah, moved to another city because I can't be out of it. <laughs> um and yeah, so I'm here and I've been with Young Voices since August last year. So that was when I was enrolled in the program and I've just thoroughly enjoyed it. I've uh, done writing, done broadcasting. So and it's just been great to do alongside my university study. And let's start right there with London, because London has really become the center to what we would call the B story to the Ukraine-Russia conflict. You've lived there. You're familiar with London. For the American audience, there's been a long known, it was one of those things where everybody knew, but now they really know, uh, the absolute river of Russian money that goes through the UK, specifically London, which is, of course, one of the financial hubs of all the world. But it's really been brought to the forefront since Russia invaded Ukraine. How is that playing? Because there does seem to be kind of a little bit of a groundswell here to actually do something about all this. Some of it's dirty money, some of it's laundered money that's been made respectable but it's very much in the mindset of the people in the UK right now of, hey, it's time to finally do something about this thing that everybody knew about, but they kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudged at it, didn't they? Yeah, you're incredibly right about the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Everyone knew about it. Uh, if you know Harrods in London, obviously it's sort of a famous kind of tourist hub. Uh, if you walk through the place where it's in called Knightsbridge, uh, no houses, none of the mansions around there are owned by British people. It's all owned by Russians and uh, no one actually ever lives there. They're usually always empty. And it's sort of polluted our democracy. London is what you could call the washing machine for Russia's dirty money. Um, and it's because we in Britain do not have a trade surplus on manufactured goods. So we relied on selling assets for foreign cash. We welcomed the investment and these Russians from you could say the privatization uh, from the 1990s, they could buy these mansions um, and the government would lap up the money. And I think it's become so much more salient. Now people really, really know what's going on because it really hit home when uh, Roman Abramovich was sanctioned, who owns Chelsea Football Club. And as you know, probably the UK, we love our football. Uh, it really struck a chord at the cultural heart of the UK, not just in, you know, world politics terms. Um, and it's not just that a rich owner of an esteemed football club is being reprimanded. It's affecting the jobs of all the normal regular people who work for the club, who are worried that they're not going to get their next paycheck. And it just reveals the intricacy and how much this dirty money, you could call it, has filtered down and affected the lives of everyday working Britons. And, well, Liz Truss, our foreign secretary, has issued some of the most harshest sanctions uh, we've ever seen. Um, and the banks of London now have been asked to give details of where the sanctioned individuals have moved their money to, to the Financial Conduct Authority, so we can really get a grip on how these sanctions uh, are affecting um these oligarchs so i guess it is not a it's not a problem with an easy solution we have to unpick it um 
Boris Johnson today wrote an article in the Daily Telegraph uh, talking about how we need to move away from reliance on Russia. He didn't mention oligarch money, but I think he wrote it within the context that he had to say something about moving away from Russian investment, whether that was oil. Uh, he was pledging self-reliance on energy and, you know, in, in an optimistic bid uh, onto sort of nuclear and renewable sources. Um, and he just said the West had made a mistake to in 2014 to just... Uh, step aside while Russia annexed Crimea. Um, so there are going to be a lot of complexities, but I guess we just have to wait and see. I'm trying to think of a good comparison, talking to Alice Watson-Brown from Young Voices UK with us. Chelsea Football Club, it has a little bit more of a profile in America now because, of course, Christian Poselic plays for them. Um, yeah. So they, they're well-known, but... This would be like the owner of the Yankees being told that he can no longer be in the country or the New York Giants, a big time club, London's team. I know there's other teams. Let's not go down that road. But, you know, they put pride of London on the stadium for a reason. This this is a cultural big, big deal. But it also underlines the question. And you mentioned Boris Johnson. There was you don't get that kind of power without a lot of political considerations. How deep does this go? Does this go into the political sphere? Does this money get into politics? Does it go into parliament and office holders? Is it just the culture or is the fear and the investigations going to be, hey, they've actually got their hooks into our actual way of governing here? It's political as well, although that is, I suppose, less accessible. Everyone does have a notion that I suppose in the U.S. lobbying is far more of a entity that's talked about but in the UK it occurs a lot as well um and MPs rely on lobbying money a lot and a lot of that can come from Russia and there have been you know Boris Johnson and most of the British political establishment have links with Russian personnel be it friends of Putin or just oligarchs in general and it has I suppose with all the media attention on Chelsea and the cultural factor, the political factor has not been as highlighted in the media as you'd perhaps think. And it could just be because they're not trying to feed into the, you know, political trust deficit that has just infiltrated the entirety of, of the UK and the US as well. I, I, from what I can tell, but we'll have to see. I mean, the UK haven't exactly been passive um, on their actions against Russia. We raised, I think, around £120 million in five days to help Ukraine. So we are definitely making political stances against Putin. But when it comes to revealing and underlying the intricate links of the British political elite, that's something that's never get, ever going to come out. We <laughs> Because there are so many. And there's also comes the question of, especially with the sports thing and with politicians and their ties with questionable political entities such as Saudi Arabia or China, um, where do we draw the line? What, which country, go? What, what do we class as going too far when it comes to human rights abuses and territorial integrity? Because we have other football clubs in the UK, which are owned by uh, Saudi Arabia. So how do we compromise with that? But I suppose that Boris Johnson, this war for him, 
could be his savior. You were saying earlier that, um, you know, what, how two months can change things. I mean, the polling, his polling approvals have not gone up, but uh, he has um, just about recovered from the nadir of Partygate, which I don't know if if that is well known in the US, but we were under national lockdown from May 2020. Um, you could be fined for sitting on a park bench having a coffee if your coffee cup was empty and you were just sitting down there for too long. And you could be fined for just, you know, walking on the street uh, with alcohol after 10 p.m. if you were a student. Um, so it was really heavy rules. And it turns out that all that time in the heart of our supposed democracy, cabinet ministers and the prime minister and himself were partying into the early hours with booze and, you know, just flouting and disrespecting the civic duty that the British people took upon themselves to protect each other. So Labour is still currently, the opposition are still currently pulling ahead, but Boris Johnson is not no longer projected to lose his constituency. Um, so there is some positive there for him. And he is a sort of prided himself on being a sort of Churchill figure, especially when it came to advocating this wartime spirit in the time of COVID. Uh, so this could be the making of him. I suppose he wants to leave office without a tarnished legacy. And we've introduced these, it's this um, campaign, it's called Home for Ukraine in the UK, where um, if a UK citizen signs up and says they want to take in refugees, they get paid £350 a month by the government. Uh, it opened last night, so Monday evening, um, and over 100,000 UK citizens have applied. We we're pretty, I would say that it's given us revitalized some sense of humanity after complaining about mask wearing and schools opening for two years. So this could perhaps save him. Yeah, a little bit of rally around the flag kind of stuff with this. Talking yes. about Alice Watson Brown. Uh, one more quick thing on on this. We just went through a couple of years, of course, with Russia, 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 and Donald Trump here, and you get pictures of untoward Russian figures with all kinds of folks. UK's got that problem right now. Boris Johnson is one of them. You got this Yevgeny Ledbet gentleman. <laughs> He's yeah. with Prince William. He's with Boris Johnson. Pretty much you name the who's who, even Judy Dench and Ian McKellen, people who would know actors here in America. The who's who of British society, they got pictures with this guy. You know, how is this going to be one of those things where it's it's guilt by association or is this just going to be a lot of innuendo and then it kind of fades away as the crisis fades? How do you think it plays out? I think from the public point of view, we we are supposedly more concerned with refugees at the minute. We're more concerned about how the government are going to help those people who are now fleeing from a war-torn country. From my perspective, we know our government is associated with corrupt people and corrupt regimes. For us, that's nothing new. I know that's a very sad thing to say, probably as a 21-year-old living in a liberal democracy, but to me, there's only so much you can be outraged at. And, you know, as long as I don't feel in everyday life that I'm benefiting off the backbone of these kind of regimes, which I probably am, you can't really take action against it. But there will obviously there is this always this going to be sense of moral outrage on Twitter. Um, but surprisingly, all MPs have been quiet. They're not ousting each other because they're all involved. So it really is just trial by jury of the public when it comes to the next election. Yeah, talking to Alice Watson Brown, thrilled to have her a UK contributor. We're going to take a quick break. We come back uh, more UK perspective on 
Ukraine and Russia. How Zelensky's playing there. He spoke to their parliament last week. Also, uh, she just did a radio hit about the humanity of the West when it comes to Ukraine. We're going to get into that with her more with Alice Watson Brown right after this. Welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thanks for sticking with us. Continuing our conversation from over yonder uh, instead of my beloved up yonder, Alice Watson Brown. Okay. Zelensky, of course, has become kind of the figure of Ukraine, the leader of Ukraine. You talked about uh, Boris Johnson wanting to be a Churchillian figure, which is probably shooting a little high. And you may not want to remind him what happened to Churchill as soon as the war was over electorally. But Zelensky, we really do seem to, at least in the PR side of things, have one going here. This is kind of rare. He spoke to Parliament, which is something that does not happen a whole lot. Uh, what's the perception there in the UK? We talked about there's a lot of rally around the flag. I imagine he's immensely popular and very inspiring to the British people, especially when it comes to taking in these refugees, knowing that this man is leading their country. Yeah, so the address to our Parliament, um, there's there are very few instances where MPs show any sign of really being human um, to the media, but our um, defense secretary, Ben Wallace, was um, in tears. He was fighting back tears. Uh, Zelensky's address, uh, it was heart-wrenching. He was pulling on the heartstrings of British culture and British history. He referenced Shakespeare, Churchill, our preparation against Nazi invasion to drag us into his worldview. And he did it extremely effectively. He as you said, has got the PR side of it incredibly, you know, fine-tuned for his audience. Um, and he nobly thanked us for our help. Um, and I think despite all the criticism that has come from certain facets of our society, notably, you know, the political opposition for saying that we we aren't doing enough, um, especially, you know, people compare our role in it to the European unions, but actually we launched Operation Orbiton um, after the annexation of Crimea, and we went over and trained up the Ukrainian army, gave them NLAW missiles, um, and the EU gained up, gave nothing. Our NATO spending has been up to requirement. Germany's hasn't. And yeah, I think it, it makes you take a step back and think about that this could be what brings the West together after a time of such division, political, social, and cultural division about things that when you think, when you look at Ukraine, don't really matter. You know, like, why are you putting masks on kids because of a virus that isn't going to kill them when there are kids across the world who whose home have been destroyed, who are victims of a violation of the Geneva Conventions, that everything that we fought for in our international institutions yeah, I think Zelensky is a sort of figurehead for us. Um, we and we'd hope that Boris Johnson will mobilize that and and pursue that in in political currency on the world stage. Is since we're talking about Parliament, things don't happen in a vacuum. Parliament, 
one of the most extraordinary, and and I'm one of those people. I watch PMQs every Wednesday. I keep up with UK politics pretty well. I I never thought I would live to see Parliament denounce America like they did during the Afghanistan crisis when that fell apart. And you have you know members of Parliament you know openly talking down about their relationship with America and the American president because of how that happened. Is that aftertaste still there in Parliament and in the culture of? That that was not a good moment for us, but then you have this rally around the flag moment for Ukraine. That's got to be a small part of this as well, because like you said, it's like the COVID stuff. I think people just had a lot of bad news and want to see something good and hear some like, hey, we helped train this military that's really, you know, giving the Russians all they can handle here, despite all the odds. Yeah, I think after Afghanistan that we've had this sort of persistent hangover from Iraq and Tony Blair. Um and Afghanistan was a shock to everyone, I think. Um, we did not have any premonition that it would happen as quickly as it did. I, I don't know if that's a fault from the media or generally because people had limited information about what was going on from the ground. I think Parliament now, when it comes to the US, know that there has to be unity when it comes to Ukraine. And Parliament's relationship with the US has, I don't think it was as fractured as people like to make out under President Trump. Uh, Obviously, there was a lot of moral opposition when he decided to come to the UK, but ultimately we we wanted to work with him because you guys are obviously still, (laughs) should be our friends, right? Um, But I think there are a lot of people, especially on the right, who supported Boris Johnson as the sort of Brexit champion, regaining back our sovereignty and things like that, um, who are, there's bittersweet, this taste of rallying around the flag, as you'd put it, um, because we've lived in sort of distaste for his, these draconian measures that a libertarian prime minister has championed and lied to us about. And now we suddenly have to support him again in something that we we don't know if NATO was responsible for. But I think Afghanistan, we haven't heard much about it. We made mistakes when it came to taking in refugees. Uh, we lost files, we lost data, we lost track of people. Um, it did feel like we just dropped sticks and left and abandoned people and didn't, didn't inform anyone about it. But hopefully you know, and not in a cynical way, we will be able to redeem ourselves on Ukraine and the, and it, you know, the hearts of the British people are open. Yeah. The, the stat of them, you know, a hundred thousand people offering to take in refugees is an amazingly great story. Britain of course has a long history of taking in people, not notwithstanding the last few years and fussing with France about the channel and things like this. England has a long history of doing these sorts of things. Broadly speaking though, um, there's, there's been this sort of thing of, Okay, maybe the UK is trying to find their place in the world because, you know, obviously the British Empire is no more. We're past the Cold War stuff. And then you have the Brexit stuff that just drug on for years after years after years. Is it the feeling now of like, okay, we're not sure what's next with our relationship with Europe, but this aggression from Putin, this this obvious clear and present danger to the Western world order, does this seem like it's clarified it of? okay, we need to put the Brexit stuff behind us. We have to figure out what our relationship with wider Europe is and we need to move forward. And this is what it's going to look like. It's probably not completely a thought, but it seems like maybe it's been clarified a little bit the last few weeks. Yeah, people are tired of Brexit being in the media. 
they're, they're tired of it. Uh, people still poll and supposedly the latest poll is that 49% of British people still think it was wrong to leave. Um, I don't know how much I trust those polls. They don't release the questions that they ask the public. So, but um, I think with our relationship with the European Union, in the context of Ukraine, the UK probably would have acted in the interests of NATO rather than the EU as a foreign policy body anyway. And we we were able to introduce our sanctions, but we just avoided and surpassed the intergovernmental processes of the EU, which are incredibly complicated. And I think despite our spats with migrant over migrants and economic migrants, mainly with Macron, we have to show unity. We can't be petty and talk about technocratic clauses of Brexit and where people can fish. That's not what politicians are there for. This is what these institutions and these alliances were made for is to stand up to threat and balance power because Putin sees this as a zero-sum game. And if we retreat because we are fractured over a political decision that occurred in 2016, how weak are we? We have There will be no moral backbone if that's what our politicians, you know, our politicians do. And I think it would be even an even graver disappointment if that is what prevented us from taking coherent action. So I think hopefully the... Brexit debate is over um, when it comes to the bitterness, the the soul bitterness that encompass people and the division, the hatred. I, I mean, I, it was my first kind of first kind of years of becoming politically mature, I'd guess. I first Brexit and then COVID, and each of them was I'm for and against this, and if you don't agree with me you are X and you are Y and you don't have any heart or any soul. And the it's strange. I don't know if this happened with America and Trump you voting Republican in 2016 or, but the hatred that ensued against people who had voted leave was unprecedented. And it, I was, you know, young and I, I would have voted leave if I was, able to vote. I was only 16 at the time. Um, but I, I couldn't, I felt scared to talk to my friends about it, but now we can talk about it loosely because we know we have way bigger problems in the world and that's Ukraine. So hopefully it'll bring, it'll just ease the kind of social tensions. Yeah. Talking to Alice Watson Brown, uh, you raise a good point. So let me just kind of wrap this up, uh, in that way. Then, uh, you talk about generational thing. Your generation is too young to remember the Cold War, although you've obviously it shaped a lot of the world that you grew up in. Uh, things like Brexit, things like this Russian invasion now, these are probably going to be generational defining things for your generation's politics going forward in the UK and probably Europe's as well. We, we've already seen in Poland and countries like, you know, they got the border right there. They're dealing with this stuff. How do you think that plays out as they look forward? Because we were kind of all assuming that the COVID stuff might be a generation shaping thing, but this may actually kind of eclipse some of that. How do you see that going forward and how it's going to play with that rising generation of, you know, post-college starting to become professionals and how they see the world? Well, there is a sort of running joke on my generation that we're really bored of living through paramount historical events. <laughs> We've had huge constitutional change, a global pandemic, and possibly on the brink of World War Three. Um, I, to me, what is interesting is 
how the global liberal order changes and how it will develop. Um, and I possibly see our generation as being the generation that marks the development of a multiplex world, uh, wherein it's not necessarily defined by hegemony or your balance of power, but a multitude of globalized systems, be it trade, finance, non-government organizations, multinational companies, uh, all forming different alliances for different purposes rather than just the United Nations or, you know, the ICC or, you know, and I think that is a good thing, but also terrifying because when it comes to multinational corporations like Amazon or big tech, none of that is democratically accountable. So that means it's all self-reliance. It's all self-protection. It's all finding about how you can keep as much control over your own life as possible because our lives are so commodified. We're all online now. Every part of us is sellable and usable to, for a profit to an advertising company. And I think rather than looking at it as how, what are we the generation of, of data or are we the generation of war and pandemics? I'm, I'm leaning towards the former. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. Great, great answer to an impossible question to answer. So good job on that. Uh, Alice Watson Brown. One last thing to kind of round this back to where we started the viewpoint of the UK and of Europe a little more broadly. What's the viewpoint over there of America's leadership? We talk, you know, we're obsessed with ourselves. Let's just call it what it is because we think the whole world revolves around us. Uh, but what does Europe and the UK specifically, how do they see America in this crisis? Do they see us as followers? Do they see us as leaders? Do they see us indifferent? How is the current American leadership playing during this crisis in Ukraine? Well, I don't, uh, firstly, I don't think there's anything wrong with American exceptionalism. It's it's a very interesting phenom- phenomenon that is, uh, it's a very specific form of patriotism, which I'm interested in. Um, but I my answer to that question, it really depends if you think that Trump would have been better in this situation or Biden. Personally, um, I think Donald Trump would have been slightly better because he could have mobilized some of the more controversial allies that Biden wouldn't want to go near with a 10 foot barge pole like Saudi Arabia, for example. There are reports that Saudi aren't even answering Biden's calls. I had that on the radio. Um, I think from our perspective, we need a leader and this is America's perfect chance to exercise itself as not only a a hard power when it comes to sanctions or even, you know, emphasizing the mutually assured destruction uh, concept that was so key in the cold war. Um, But also as a, a normative power, a power of promotion of democracy and freedom. Um, but a lot of us now don't necessarily look to America as this beacon of freedom and hope. I think exposed by the sheer impact that COVID had, not at a political level, but at the health level of, 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 US, of US people. People are very sick in Western countries. And I think the US is a kind of powder keg of that, be it from processed food or from bad governments, healthcare inequalities. We're not necessarily looking there domestically, but 
we we would feel incredibly insecure without America with us on the world stage. Yeah, we do too. Uh, we call it the special relationship for a reason. It has its ups and downs, but we definitely want to continue to provide that with our friends at the UK. You're one of them, Alice Watson Brown. So thrilled for the conversation today. I really appreciate it. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you on social media. I know you appear on uh, British media, which a lot of us have been watching a lot more of lately because our network news don't do great with international affairs. Let folks know where they can follow you and your social media so they can keep up with what you got going on. Yeah, uh, I'm just on Twitter at Alice Watson Brown, A-L-Y-S Watson Brown, all one word. And uh, yeah, I post some great content when I can be bothered. <laughs> so give me a follow. Another one of our great uh, Young Voices contributors. You can find her stuff at youngvoices.org. Uh, Alison Watson Brown, thank you so much. We will definitely have you back soon and appreciate the time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Appreciate it. And who said that our Congress and Senate can't get anything passed? Welcome back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, the Senate passed a bill to make daylight savings time permanent. The Sunshine Protection Act passed the chamber with unanimous consent. The bill would still need to pass the House and be signed by President Joe Biden to become the law. But basically what's going to happen is if this is confirmed, daylight savings time becomes the norm and no more switching back and forth. Now, people have strong opinions on this one way or the other. Frankly, where I'm at, I don't care either way. Just pick one and stay with it. The idea that we change times is ridiculous. It's antiquated. Get rid of it. People have strong opinions about earlier in the day, later in the day. I don't care. Just pick one and quit switching back and forth. But also goes to show you, it's interesting how our Senate and our Congress can move very rapidly when they want to. This was a unanimous vote by voice. Why can't we do more things like that? Begs to ask questions like that. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We always try to end on a positive note, something Alice Watson Brown touched on in her interview today. More than 100,000 Brits sign up to house Ukrainian refugees. This is from the Washington Post. Uh, Homes for Ukraine, a new program is known, launched Monday afternoon. Within six hours, 44,000 Brits had signed up before the government website crashed. Less than a day later, more than 100,000 had registered their interest taking a refugee with the reamped website. Malcolm Pollard, 66, is among those who hope to welcome a Ukrainian family into his home. He runs a village shop in Kirk Ireton, a village about 140 miles north of London. He and his wife are now empty nesters in their stone home, which was built in the 17th century, has an apartment with a separate entrance. We see awful things and we have available space. If this is what happened in England and our daughter or son needed to escape, we hope someone would like this would help us. Unlike other European countries, Britain has not waived visa restrictions. Until this week, only those with families ties to Britain could apply. On Monday, the British government launched a new refugee pathway scheme for those who have no family ties. The government says that the first sponsored Ukrainian refugees are expected to arrive next week. The government will pay $450 a month to house refugees, hosts who must be vetted or required to offer accommodations for at least six months. Ukrainians who arrive in the country on their program will be granted a three-year visa, allowing them to work and access benefits in the National Health Service. It cannot be right that people who are fleeing Russian aggression have to advertise themselves on social media in the hope that a British family will notice, said Lisa Nandy. James Cleverly, a foreign officer minister, said there's a huge number of people and organizations that have already got connections with Ukrainians. 
rather than replicate, duplicate, and slow down. We want to be as agile and quick as possible. This switch comes after fierce criticism that uh, lawmakers and charity and three-quarters of the public who say Britain wasn't doing enough. As of Monday, only 4,000 visas had been processed, but England and the UK signing up Brits to take 100,000 of them to take in refugees. Wonderful news. Great moment of light and truly dark times. That'll do it for Hertel today. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Very important. You won't miss anything we have going on. Hertel every weekday morning. Good talk, interview breakouts every afternoon. Long form podcasts on the weekends, twice on Sunday recap show on Sundays. We appreciate you so much joining us. Make sure you're missing nothing. Make sure you're getting all of the great information and guests that we bring you. And do do us a favor. Only cost you a click or two to share us on all your social media. We'd surely appreciate it. So until we see you again tomorrow, for more Hertel, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you tomorrow on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.